In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul invites us to reflect on the foundations we're building our lives upon. He warns against the dangers of a faulty foundation built upon disunity, immorality, and ultimately defiance of God. Paul makes it clear that a strong foundation is built on Jesus Christ, and apart from His strength, we will crumble. We are all a work in progress. God created us as vessels to glorify Him, and the choices that we make and the relationships we pursue affect the condition of our foundation. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are made in the image of God, and what we choose to do with our bodies matters. The way we treat our bodies either glorifies God or glorifies us. Jesus redeems the world's distorted view of sexuality and sanctifies our relationships with each other. Whether God has called you to build a life through the gifts of singleness or marriage, His design is greater than any blueprint we create for ourselves. We must reflect on the foundations we are laying and understand that a life built upon God's truth is filled with unexplainable joy, peace, and beauty. All right, well, good morning. It's great to be with everybody. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and meet me in 1 Corinthians. That's the book that we're in. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're going to be this, this morning. That's where we're going to camp out as we continue our series called Messy Church. You may recall from our first week in this book, I, I talked about there's five major things that really issues that are happening in the church at Corinth that Paul addresses. And the goal is, is that he's showing us how the gospel transforms every single one of those things. Well, we're moving away from the first one, which was division and a distorted view of leadership. And then this week, we're going to take a, an in-depth look at uh, sexuality. We begin this kind of process of, of, of taking a, a, a deep look into the fact that our bodies, what we do with our bodies and, and the way that we handle our bodies, the way we view our bodies, all those things really matter for the kingdom of God. Uh, Paul's going to have some hard things to say to us. So we've got to brace ourselves. We need to buckle up our seatbelt. It's going to be fine. You don't have to preach it. I do. So, so you're going to be just fine. Okay. We're going to have a good time together as we look at what the word has to say to us as we submit ourselves to the word and trust that that it's true and it's accurate and it's right and good. And that, is, and that is what we have in the Bible. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. In our text today, Paul is going to reveal to us how the culture around the church has made its way into the church. And so he's going to call it to light. Um, in Corinth, they have a very distorted view of sexuality. Again, their culture is, is sexually obsessed, kind of like our culture is today. And so that has kind of made its way into the church. And so the church is struggling with that too. Um, there's some avoidance issues that we're going to talk about today. And, and so it's going to be helpful for us to, to look clearly at what the Word has to say and understand that it's God's good design and, and quite frankly, a healthy design for the church as we're going to see this morning. So here we are. This is the problem Paul identifies in chapter 5, verse 1. Okay, chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what Paul says. He says, It's actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality in your midst and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. And here's the problem. 
For a man has his father's wife. Yes, it's as weird as it sounds. Paul says that there, it's reported among you that there is sexual immorality in the church and of a kind that is not even tolerated from the pagans in the culture and the unbelieving world. So rather than influencing the culture, Paul is helping the church see that the culture is now influencing the church in such a way that they too have adopted a distorted view of sexuality. And he describes what has happened, that a son is, an engage, is engaging in an inappropriate relationship, ongoing, unrepentant sexual relationship with his father's wife, his stepmom. Paul even goes so far as to say that for the pagan culture around you, right, this is not just the unbelieving culture around you. This is like the unbelieving culture that's making really, 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 really bad choices are now looking at the church and going, oh gosh, I can't even believe they would do that. Like that's how bad it is. And Paul calls it what it is. And he says it's sin. It's sin. That's what Paul's helping them see is that they have become, quite frankly, like not just the unbelieving culture, but the pagan culture around them. And Paul's response to the church is one of both shock and disappointment. You're going to see shock and disappointment in verse 1. or I'm sorry, in verse 2, Paul says, you are arrogant. He says, ought you not mourn over this? Paul's shock comes from verse 1. He says, it's actually reported among you. It's, it's kind of this picture of, I can't believe I'm hearing. I can't believe what I'm hearing. Like we've, we've dealt with this. Like you guys should be farther from this than you actually are. And, and here I am hearing that like this is the kind of stuff that's happening in the church. And so there's this shock on one end of what's actually happening in the church. That there's sexual immorality that's, that's going on. But then at the same time, you get this sense of Paul's disappointment in the church. He says... Uh, he refers to their arrogance. He's referring to ultimately their pride is really what he's referring to. Their silence on this issue reveals that they are guilty of caring more about themselves and their own reputation than they do about a brother who is in deep, dark sin. You know, I don't know, maybe, maybe this brother is a part of an influential family. Maybe they give a lot of money to the church. I don't really know, but the whole idea is, well, if we expose this, then, you know, all kinds of things are going to break out. It's going to be trouble for the church. And so honestly, it's just better to sweep it under the rug than it is to deal with it. And you can see Paul's disappointment in the church and the fact that they would just allow it to go on. Nevertheless, Paul's focus then is not so much on what the young man is engaged in, but quite frankly, how the church responds and if we're honest, the church doesn't respond, and that's the problem. So for the young man, there's an ongoing, unrepentant sexual sin that's happening in his life. That's the sin in the young man. But there's also a sin in the church, and we don't talk about this very often. It's not only the young man who has the problem, but it's also a church that has the problem. Remember, Paul is writing to the church. He's not addressing the young man. He's addressing the church. And the problem that Paul is addressing is the fact that, that they would just sweep it under the rug. So there's a sin in the young man, but then there's the sin of omission in the church. And Paul says this should not be. That the church should not just ignore what is happening in the body. There's nothing healthy, there's nothing good about that. Now, 
because this brother is you know, engaging in unrepentant and ongoing sin, Paul says that the right response is that of mourning. It's not, it's not to ignore it. It's not to sweep it under the rug, but we should be in mourning over the sin. The idea of mourning comes from that of a funeral, of a deep grief over the loss of a loved one. It's like a family coming together, grieving the loss of a loved one, that when somebody is in ongoing unrepentant sin, we as the family of God ought to see their life and mourn over it. Mourn as though we are losing a brother, as though we're losing a sister. What it means is that we've got to take sin seriously. That's what Paul's saying here. Because we understand that it is sin that is destroying somebody that we love. Sin is not something to play with. It's not something to ignore. It's something that is left unattended in your life will ultimately destroy you. And so Paul is saying, how can it be loving for a church to sit back and not address something that is literally destroying somebody that we claim to love, who we claim to be a part of our family? The right response, Paul says, is to, is to mourn over the sin. But then he also gives us kind of an action step. In verse 2, he says, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed among you. Paul goes on and gives some more graphic language in verse 3. He says, For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I already have pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, you don't have to preach this. I do, so everybody's fine. I can imagine that you feel the same way I felt this week as I was preparing for, okay, how do we navigate what Paul is saying in this text? Because we know that it's true, we know that it's right, and we know that it's good. And so then what do we do with that? Because we hear this language and we think, golly, man, Paul, Paul seems a little bit harsh. I mean, remove him from among you, deliver him to Satan, all of these things. I mean, we got to wrestle through that. It's God's word. and We can't skip it. How do we handle that? Well, I think that the Bible would argue, I would argue this, and I think the Bible would argue it too, is that the most loving, kind thing that any family could do, speaking of a spiritual family here, the most loving and kind thing that we could do for a brother or a sister who is caught in unrepentant, ongoing sin, is to look at that brother or sister and say, hey, I love you and I love you so much that I am going to kindly ask to remove you from the family. That's what Paul's saying here, that the most loving and kind thing that we could do for a brother or sister caught into sin is to remove them from the church family. And then he's going to give three reasons why that that is the most loving, kind and healthy thing that a church can do. There's three reasons why. Number one, it's for the health of the individual. It's for the health of the individual who is engaging in the unrepentant, ongoing sin. In verse five, he gives us the reason why. The reason why is so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The reason why we would remove a brother or a sister from the family of God is so that for the purpose of that they may come to a point of repentance and come back home to the Lord and to the family. So 
I'm going to give an illustration to try to help us understand this a little bit better. This is really hard to do. It's not a perfect illustration, so don't poke holes in it. I'm just trying to get our heads wrapped around. I want you to see the benefit and the loss of what Paul is talking about here. I want you to think of adoption. In the, in the ideal world, right, a family comes into an orphanage. They choose a child, and in, upon them choosing that child, they adopt that child into the family. And as that child is being adopted into the family, that child now has a new name. That child has a new family. That child has a new home. That child now has a place of peace and security that they probably more than likely have never had ever. In the same way, in the salvation moment, right, God walks into the spiritual orphanage. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. He walks into a spiritual orphanage. He looks across the room. He selects a child from the orphanage, adopts that child into the orphanage. By the way, that's you. You're the child. I'm the child. He adopts that child into his family. And now that child has a new name. That child has a new home. That child has a new family in the family of God and a place of rest and security that you have never had before in your life. This is the benefit that you receive in the salvation moments. Yes, you receive the forgiveness of your sin. Yes, you receive the promise of eternal security, but also between that point and the ending point where we go to be with the Lord for all of eternity, there is the church. There's this family that you and I have, a place of rest and security, right? Paul's helping us see that there is a, a, a eternal benefit that comes when you and I give our hearts and minds over to Jesus. And what Paul is saying here is that when a brother or a sister is caught in unrepentant, ongoing sin, it is to remove them from the benefits that come with saying yes to Jesus. All for the purpose of like the prodigal son, that they would come to an end of themselves, that they'd come to the end of their sin, recognize the emptiness that's there, repent, and come back to the Lord. Paul says that the most loving thing that a family can do is to remove this brother, remove this sister from the benefits in order that he or she might appreciate again the benefits of the family. And by the way, there are true benefits of being a part of a church family. And it's far more than coming to church, you know, twice a month. Like there are these beautiful benefits that come with being a part of the church family. There's a security blanket that the Lord offers you here in this family. There's some protection. There's people who are looking out for you, who care for you, who are praying for you, who are pushing against the darkness and ushering in light for you. Like there's this benefit that comes with being a part of the family that if it's removed, ought to, if you are a believer, if you have the spirit, ought to elicit in you sadness and mourning and guilt over your sin to the degree that you would go to the Lord and that you would repent and that you would long to be a part of the family of God once again. So that's Paul's intent here. Now keep in mind, right, Paul is not talking about guests. So when he's talking about removing the brother or the sister among you, he is not talking about guests who are visiting churches. It's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about um, the guest who shows up who has a story of sin in their life. 
Let's be clear with that. Paul's also not talking about perfection, that Christians everywhere in this room or in this room need to live a life of perfection. Paul is much more on the argument of progress towards perfection in Christ, not perfection, right? Nobody's perfect. Nobody in this room is perfect. So what we can't do is think that as Paul's talking about this, that everybody who has sin in their life needs to be removed from the church. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is talking about ongoing, unrepentant sin from somebody who claims to be a brother or a sister, meaning they claim to be a Christian and yet they are living like they're not. So that's who, that's, that's the audience that Paul's talking here, right? We all have a struggle, but this is one whose struggle has overcome them. And quite frankly, they're not willing to do anything about it. Jesus talks about how we're to engage with this in Matthew 18. That, you know, one brother goes to another brother and then a second goes to the brother. And the whole goal is restoration and repentance and being brought back into the family of God. What Paul is saying here is when all of that doesn't work, they need to be removed from the church. They need to be removed from the family. So it's... The health, most, most loving and healthy thing that we can do for the brother, for the individual. But then two, it protects the integrity of the family. Not only is it the right, good, and healthy thing for the individual, but it also protects the integrity of the family itself. In verse 6, Paul says, he says, your boasting is not good. Your pride is not good. Your lack of dealing with this is not good. That's what he's saying. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So today we know um, the closest similarity to leaven is yeast. It's not the same thing, but it's as close as we can get. And yeast is a type of fungus that when put in dough and placed into the oven, right, it spreads rapidly through the dough and it causes the dough to rise. In this particular case, this is an illustration that Paul is using to help us recognize the damaging effects of sin in the family. By the way, there is damaging effects of sin to the family. It's not just the individual, but you know, the individual engage, engages in unrepentant, ongoing sin. It's impacting the individual, but it won't be long before it starts impacting the overall church. So Paul says by little leaven, leavens the whole lump. You got a bad apple, it's eventually going to affect the rest of the apples. Right? It's like a husband with a gambling addiction. Eventually, that's going to come to the family. The daughter with a drug addiction, right? Starts off innocent. All of a sudden, you know, she starts lying to mom and dad. Then we get, go down the road a little bit longer. Some bad people start coming around. The drug addiction leads her to start stealing from mom and dad. I mean, we can go on and on. It's the mom with the gossiping addiction. Eventually, if that sin is left unattended or ignored just like cancer right it's going to eat that person up from the inside out and eventually it's going to impact the whole family nobody lives in a church family with ongoing unrepentant sin that it does not impact the rest of the family 
It's true. So Paul, Paul uses the Passover as a great illustration that just like Israel put leaven outside of the house as a sign of leaving the sin behind to remove the sin that is among them as a sign to help us see that we too who have been purchased by the blood of Christ must leave our sin behind and to press on towards holiness. And that is a collective vision and a collective goal, not just an individual vision and an individual goal. Right? When you say yes to Jesus, you are saying yes to his sacrifice on the cross that paid for your sin, covered your debt, not in part, but the whole, all of it, gone, past, present, future, fully, freely, forever. Your sin is paid for. And then we enter into this process called sanctification where God is, is transforming us from the inside, of out, inside out, making us look more and more and more and more like Christ. It's a process of holiness from the moment you say yes to Jesus to the day you go be with him for all of eternity. There's this process of sanctification where you're working out the justification that you received when you said yes to him. And so there's this process where, where, where we're working to look more and more and more like Jesus individually. But then as the church, it's the same process as we are helping one another to look more and more and more and more and more like Jesus. We are no longer the same as we once were. So in Christ, I love this, God has exposed the impurities of our heart. He has brought what was in darkness. He has brought it to light so that we might live in sincerity and truth. I love the word sincerity. It, has, it comes from the word we get son. It's this beautiful idea that in Christ, God has exposed via the son. He has shed light on what was hidden in darkness. He's ushered it into light so that you could live without any secrets. Can you imagine a life where you don't have to hide anything? Where you don't walk into a room and go, man, I hope that they never figure this out where you have to cover up your sin and your shame and your guilt. What Paul is saying here is that we ought to live exposed. Christians ought to live exposed in the family where we can come and we can bring all of our junk and all of our mess and we can, we can confess it with one another. As James, James 5 tells us that if we confess our sins to one another, we can experience healing. That when we take what is in darkness and we bring it into the light where we confess it to one another that we ought to experience healing and restoration where we don't have anything to fear and we don't have to live as though, gosh, I hope nobody finds out. And that's a beautiful way to live. It's an authentic, sincere, genuine way to live. And that's what Paul says that we should expect from one another. That quite frankly, we're going to talk about judgment here in a minute, which is so fun. Uh, but I shouldn't have to judge you as my brother or sister because you ought to be judging yourself. And you ought to be constantly analyzing your life and seeing where it lines up with the Lord and where it, where it doesn't. And that I shouldn't have to be the one who calls you to confess, but rather you should call out yourself. That's the beauty of the family of God to say, hey, I've got a brother, I've got a sister, I've got friends who I can come to and say, hey, look, I'm struggling with this and I know that they're going to hear me, they're going to love me and they're not going to judge me, but they're going to accept what I'm hearing. They're going to pray for me and I'm going to find healing in that relationship. That's community, that's the community of faith. That's the family of God working at its best, at its finest. Paul says that we ought to be able to live in sincerity and truth. 
But number three, here's the other thing, the reason why it is good that we would remove a brother or a sister from the family of God. It's because it guards our witness to the community. It guards our witness in the community, right? We were put here, First Baptist Belton was put here in this community for a reason. And that reason is to be salt and light in this community. It is to offer a credible witness to the gospel in this community. And so when we take sin seriously, it tells the community that we take sin seriously. And you can't take grace seriously unless you take sin seriously. You know, it was a couple years ago, Jordan and I were living in Fort Worth. Um, there was a new gym that was put in just down the, like, I mean, literally down the block from our house. It advertised 10 bucks a month. We were super poor. I was still in seminary. I was like, 10 bucks a month sounds pretty great. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to go check it out. So I walked in the front door thinking I'm going to sign up for a $10 a month membership. I walk in the door and I was shocked by what I saw. I walked in and in the entryway was boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of free pizza. And I thought, what kind of a gym gives away pizza? That's my first thought. My second thought was as I walked in the door, there was this big bowl of candy. And it said, take, take a handful as you leave. And I'm like, what in the world? What kind of a gym offers free pizza and what kind of a gym says, take a handful of candy on your way out? And then my judgmental self continues walking in and I'm like, man, this, it looks like a real gym. It's got some really nice equipment. There's people in there working out. And then I walk to the counter and I'm greeted by people that have the, the word trainer right here. But the thing that shocks me is that they, they weren't in the best of health. <laughs> and so in my mind, I'm thinking... Well, they look just like me. They eat just like me. Do they really have anything to offer me that I don't have myself? See where I'm going with that? When people walk in the doors of the church, do we offer them anything else that they can't get themselves we can look like a church and yet not actually live like the church. And that's a really big problem because we lose our credibility in the, church, or in the community and then what do we have to offer people? Does your life look like you're justified in moving into the sanctification process as you're progressing into the image of Christ. The church ought to look like that. The church shouldn't be hiding things. We should be exposing what is in the darkness, hidden in the darkness. We should be bringing it to light so that we can be authentic, genuine, sincere, and dare I say credible. It's a shame today that so many churches have lost their credibility because they have not taken the gospel seriously. They've not taken sin seriously. They've not taken grace seriously. And they're the same today as they were yesterday. Shame on us. So Paul writes in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. 
But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Much like today, there was confusion over who to hang out with in Corinth. And quite frankly, there was a confusion on what does judgment look like? So Paul clarifies, he says, look, I'm not saying that you shouldn't befriend people who are sinful people. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying that we shouldn't befriend them. He's not saying that we shouldn't spend time with them. In fact, I think Paul would argue the opposite. I think Jesus would argue the opposite. I think Jesus, who was named a friend of sinners, would say, no, we're here for a particular reason, and that's to reach the lost. But if we're never around the lost, how can you reach the lost? There's going to be people in your workplaces, at your schools, you know, in your clubs, on your teams, who do not know Jesus, who do not live like they know Jesus. And Paul is not saying, do not befriend them, do not love them, do not engage with them. In fact, again, I think he would say the opposite. Engage them, love them, welcome them, extend the hand to them so that you would love them to Christ. Share the gospel with them, help them to see the beauty and the truth of the gospel, that they can be transformed by the power of the gospel, that they can live all of eternity with Christ and that they can experience hope and purpose and meaning on this earth. That they could have forgiveness for their sin. I think, I think Paul would say, no, by all means, please do that. But what Paul would say, would, would tell us not to do, is that we shouldn't judge them. And Christians are far too often quick to judge people outside the church and ignore the sin with inside the church. <laughs> to not look at our own lives, we're so quick to look at their lives, and yet they don't have the Holy Spirit, who's cleaning them up from the inside and out. And we set this expectation for them that they cannot achieve apart from the Holy Spirit. Apart from being a Christian, you cannot live like a Christian. You cannot do it. You can be a moral person apart from the Spirit, but you cannot live out the fruit of the Spirit apart from the Spirit. If that's the case, then what we're doing here doesn't matter. So Paul says, don't judge them. Leave the judgment up to the Lord. It's God who judges those outside of the church. However, Paul does say that it is our job to judge those inside the church. And sadly, we've kind of butchered that too. We got a lot of work to do. The church has a lot of work to do because we, we view judgment wrongly. right? We, we view judgment as this kind of idea of, well, I've got it all together. You don't. You need to be more like me. You need to, you need to do what I do. You know what the Bible calls, calls that? Self-righteousness. And Jesus condemns that in a big, bad, ugly way. As a matter of fact, that's the, the very thing that he accuses the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees of on a regular basis and calls them whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but on the inside, your hearts are very far from the Lord. For us to do that reveals that our hearts are very far away from the Lord. And so he condemns self-righteousness. What Paul is calling us to do 
is to take a good look at our own life. We should all be taking an inventory of our life moment by moment of every single day and going, Lord, does, does my life line up with what you, what you call me to live like in your word? Am I submitting to your authority in my life? Am I producing fruit? Is that true of me? And recognizing that it is more often than not, not true of you and that you have a long way to go, just like all of us have a long way to go. And were it not for God's grace and his spirit and his kindness and goodness to continue to call us to repent and bring us back to him, recognize the beauty of God's grace. It's in that position that then we can approach a brother or sister and say, hey, I am after seeing Christ formed in me. I am after seeing Christ formed in you. And so I'm engaging you today humbly because I love you enough to say there's cancer in your body and we got to get it out. There's cancer in my body and I need you to help me get it out. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, Judge not that you be not judged for the judgment that you pronounce will be judged against you. When Jesus says, Be weary of how you judge. He's not telling us not to judge. He's saying, be wary of how you judge. We ought to engage from a place of humility where we recognize the log that is in our eye and the fact that we've got a long way to go. And then from that place of humility, lovingly and kindly going to a brother or sister and saying, hey, I see this in you. I love you. And I want to see you. I want to see God's best in you. I want to see Christ formed in you. Man, that is the beauty of the church. There is no beauty in self-righteous condemnation. There is great beauty and great benefit in loving, loving investigation of one another's lives to make sure that that person is healthy, that the church family is healthy, and that we have a credible witness in our community. That's powerful. I'll tell you what a healthy church is not. A healthy church is not one who ignores the sin in each other's lives. That's not a healthy church. I can also tell you what another unhealthy church does not look like. It doesn't look like self-righteous condemnation either. It doesn't look like legalism. That's not what what it looks like is a recognition of, hey, we are all a long, have a long way to go and we are going to engage with one another loving, in loving accountability so that Christ is formed in each of us. That is the beautiful picture that Paul is calling us to. And so we have to take sin seriously because if we don't take sin seriously, we can't take grace seriously. And a healthy church takes both seriously. It's both truth and grace. You take out one, you lose the other. So, hear me very clearly. If a brother or a sister, someone who claims to be a Christian, who is engaging in ongoing unrepentant sin, it is the church's responsibility to call that out, bring it to light, and to remove them from the benefit of the church so that they go to a place, they go to a point in their life where they go, God, like I can't do this anymore. And then, Lord willing, they find themselves in a place of repentance 
where they can then return back to the family. And hear me, that is God's good, good design for a healthy, thriving, and flourishing church. That's our responsibility, again, to take sin seriously so we can take grace seriously. Would you pray with me? Father, I, uh, we come to you recognizing, Lord, that we have a long way to go. And that the only way that we can get there is by the power of your spirit working in and through each other. One another. Lovingly caring for, enough, for each other enough to step in and to say, hey, I want to see Christ formed in you. And I'm willing to do hard things in order to see that come to fruition. And yet, at the same time, being willing to receive it. God, help us to be a church where we're willing to lovingly care for one another, but also willing to receive from one another so that you might be formed in us, that we would experience the transforming power of the gospel. That as Josh prayed earlier, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next so that we can be a credible witness to the people around us. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.